Welcome to Basecamp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is a show that gives you insights and resources on how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. This week, I wanted to do a continuation of the theme we set forth in episode 86, The Path of Initiation, but with a different guest. I believe that initiations mark our soul's journey and that these will come throughout our lives and can come in unusual ways. Sometimes we don't even realize that we were in an initiatory phase until the years ripen us and we can look back. Through this lens, we can see how life was bringing us forth through mythic dimensions, teaching us all the way. Like so many young people, both my guests and I experience the initiatory intensity of psychedelics on many occasions. It is not something I talk about very often, but it was a clear initiation with a before Tony and an after Tony, so I thought I would take a look at it with you today. There's something expansive and transcendent in this path, but it is fraught with danger, as spiritual teachers have often stated. Psychedelics are strong, sometimes really strong, and they can take their toll on your nervous system and your mind. I would not recommend them to everyone. Yet, for the intrepid explorer, psychedelics have proven to open the doors of perception to a more cosmic dimension. Furthermore, what is seen, felt, and understood under the influence of psychedelics will often last a lifetime. In other words, you don't need to take them over and over again, although some people certainly do. To bookend this edgier initiation, I thought I would include some wisdom from another initiation that my guest and I share, fatherhood. Here is another one that some men take and some don't. It is a terrifying thing, becoming a father. You might not hear men say how scared they are as they await the arrival of that first child, but I can certainly attest to it. I can usually tell if a man is a father just by how he carries himself. There's something intangible in a man's aura or body language that indicates that he has children. It is something in the man's soul. Perhaps it's that he is participating in his lineage in an active way and seems to carry something from his ancestors and future generations with him. Or perhaps it's just because he has skin in the game, literally. It might seem like strange bedfellows for an episode, psychedelics and fatherhood. Let's go see if we can make a little sense of these powerful initiations together. My guest today is my friend Joe Grube. Joe is an attorney, a husband and father, and a man known for his love of life, his great sense of humor, and for bringing a lightness and ease to his conversations and interactions with others. Here is my interview with Joe Grube. Okay, I am here with my friend Joe Grube, attorney, friend of the show, Joe Grube. Joe, welcome to Basecamp for Men. It's great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Tony. Absolutely. I've been super excited. You and I have been talking offline a bit about doing an episode, and we were kicking the tires on some stuff, and I and I finally came across, like, why don't we do a... Why don't we do an episode around initiations uh, with psychedelics and fatherhood? It sounds like strange bedfellows for an episode, but I was like, you know what? Yeah, I think I think we could do it. I think it would be interesting. Um, and so, you know, we, we decided, hey, I think we have enough here to do an episode. And I wanted to talk about um, psychedelics as an initiatory process and as an initiation. And you don't have to give away too much detail. I guess I just really am curious, like, how was it an initiation for you? Um, what did you learn? Was there like a before Joe, after Joe? Or I guess just what did you learn from the experience of doing psychedelics? Well, you know, I mean, I think I, you continually learn from it. But, uh, and there definitely was a before and an after. You know, it's hard to necessarily say who that is because time mm-hmm. also, you know, rolls along with us. But for me, the initiation was really, and I've actually, you know, uh, explored with various types of uh, psychedelics and so you kind of get initiated over and over again 
you know, uh, when you start the, you know, before ever trying anything, you know, I was, I was actually quite old. I was in my early thirties, but I had studied it and thought about it for, and read about it for you know years, for decades, really. And, sure. uh, I, you know, so once you finally get there, you know, um, with all the anticipation and all of that, it is, you know, probably, you probably, it's more amazing in the, you know, the beginning, at least for me, you know, it was, it was initiation and coming through it. I felt essentially it's like going through a door that you can't undo, but not in a bad way. You know, right, it's a, right. a powerful thing where, you know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, that experience, I guess, you know, that we all, or most of us have viscerally, even if we only vaguely remember it, which is the moment at which, uh, you're on two wheels on your bike by yourself mm -hmm. and no yeah. one's holding it, but it's, it's a different. It's like, it's almost like liftoff where, um, and so I guess that would be the initiation in the first sense as a younger, as a younger explorer. And then later on in my life, um, again, going and you know, trying different, uh, shamanic traditions and other things that people, uh, do that incorporate psychedelics, you're kind of back, you know, you go back to the beginning, although you, approach it not as a novice but still as an initiate so you're um you know you don't know where it's going to go but you kind of do and like no that's very vague but i will no, i think no. it's uh you know it's sort of that's how i would describe it well i think i think it's 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 initiatory too in that the first time you do it it's terrifying you because you you know it's going to be powerful because you've read or you've talked to people mm -hmm. and so there's this intense fear that you're you're often bringing into it and you know you're you're it's like it opens the doors of perception so wide open that there's no going back like i i honestly believe that a lot of my um explorations into mysticism myth consciousness is all from those first couple of psychedelic trips For like sure. especially the first few times when you really don't know what's the beginning the middle and the end you know you yeah. don't know where the acts are in the yeah. journey for that that particular trip or whatever it is sort of not, you know, I never had a fear that I'm never coming back, but I certainly didn't really know how far away we were going to go or I was right. going to go. And so it is, you know, when you're, I mean, you're an initiate in that way. Uh, and I think maybe the initiation, the way to describe it, isn't even really maybe the first or the second time you, you have that experience, but it's, mm. you're sort of initiated when you, when you understand the art of mm. that journey generally. And then you go, you know, you, you don't really panic uh, for the most part because you know you will, you know it. You know there's a there's an up. There's a you're going to land, down. right? <laughs> you're going to land. land. You're going to land. And, yeah. and it, yeah, and it's not. You know, you're not unique, and it's not. You're the one person who somehow is never coming home. And once you kind of have that, you're then I would describe that really probably as the point where you're really initiated in the sense of right. You're able to then walk inside the whatever you want to call it, your temple, your or your special yeah. place. And then do some real exploration because I'll admit the first few times that I experienced that I was not really focused on all the power of it. I was more focused on don't go outside the rails. And right, right, right. Well, I, and I have, I, have, I have friends that do um, ayahuasca ceremonies, you know, uh, regularly at, in a church setting. Um, and I mean, it's a lot different. They, they set ritual space. I mean, they're, they're, they're taking so much care preparing a space for you to have a journey into when we did it. I mean, we would just go camping and drop and it was just like, it was all hell was breaking. Sure. Like who, who knows what's going to happen, but you know, um, and, but one of the things also that I think it left behind for me was a deep, I've always loved nature, but it's like, after I had that experience, 
like, I feel like I can go out and hike in the mountains and stuff. And I can get in that space just by making a little subtle shift into how I look at the trees and the water and stuff. So I think it, it left a, you know, traces of this kind of mystical lens that is available to me because I've done that where maybe somebody that's never had the experience may have a difficult time finding that portal. Well, and you know, that it's interesting too, but for me, I, I agree that, you know, being in nature or, you know, out and away from, you know, the things that we see in our everyday life uh, is a great way to kind of go on that journey, you know, safely. And also with the space where you don't have a lot of things intruding that you weren't planning on, right? Um, like other people uh, or things like that, that are not there. But I, you know, when you're talking about kind of just letting her rip, I, you know, I know a lot of people I've met in my life who, when they were young, you know, teenagers or, you know, young adults, they, they were introduced to psychedelics in that context of a party, you know, or some yep. concert or something, which is, you know, I mean, it's been going on for a long time, but the, the experience was so either intense or unfulfilling un, um, that they never want to go back. And uh, to me, that's kind of sad because I, I, am, I, you know, I mean, everyone has to make their own choices, but the idea that you, you, you took the one bite at the apple when you were 16 years old, yeah. um, you weren't the person who was going to process that and get it, you know, and really see the, the inner values of it more than just sort of the fun, which it can yeah. be fun as well. Um, it's kind of sad. I mean, not, not to sound like a Puritan because I mean, everyone has to make their own choice, but I think that I'm very glad I waited uh, as long as I did, because the, you know, I never had an experience that made me go, well, that was okay, but you know, what's next? Yeah, I think I, I think to you touched on something there where I I think the mind. We'll talk about this in a bit when we talk about our uh, teenagers and stuff. But that you know, there's there's a optimal time to do these kind of explorations, and it's not when you're too young, right? That's not necessarily the best time to be smoking marijuana or trying psychedelics as a 15-year-old. And I know that that's common in certain um, incidences, but in a way, after you've ripened and, you know, you getting into it later, I think you're, you're much sturdier. You're much able to take the teachings, have the experience, have the takeaway, and have it be overall an uplifting and positive thing where you're like, oh, this is really adding to my understanding of, you know, the whole thing. Whereas, you know, like you said, your friend maybe started too young, was at a party, maybe there was some bad vibes at the party. And they're like, I never want to do that again. That was terrible. But um, there's seated in their personality. I mean, that's not going to yeah. change, right? I mean, that's, that's yeah. part of how they grew going. I'm staying away from this. Totally. Yeah, totally. Such a negative yeah. experience. Yeah, totally. I mean, and then you and I are both big fans of, of Ram Dass, the renowned mystic and teacher. Um, how did coming across him, did you come across him as a young man too, or after you got into psychedelics or before, like, when did you first come across and was it be here now, which is his kind of legendary book? You know, it's, I did actually, I was, I was young. I was probably either, you know, almost done with high school or in college when I first came across Ram Dass and that's, uh, you know, as part of the, you know, I hadn't was long away from ever trying psychedelics, but becoming very interested in them. And, you know, of course he was Richard Alpert before he was Ram Dass and he, was one of the in the forefront of you know the use of psychedelics in the sixties, yep. and I'll admit you know when I first came across him and I you know as you know I'm a huge uh, fan of Ram Dass's teachings. I was mostly interested in of course Be Here Now, which is a you know just an interesting book and it's actually designed but also what it has to say. But I was attracted to it because it was such a radical story of going from a Harvard professor to. Mm -hmm a bearded spiritual guru and you know i'll admit being a young person starting my own intellectual career what was 
it was not like a train wreck, but it's amazing to me. It's like, I mean, I would have, if I ever became a Harvard professor, my thoughts were that would have, I don't need to go anywhere else. Right. right. And how do you go from there to all of a sudden, you know, basically, you know, wearing a long robe, and, you know, you know, being essentially a guru. And so that was the first, you know, introduction to it, you know, not disagreeing with what he had to say or anything, but not really following it further. But later in my life, coming across it again, you know, and really getting into, you know, what he's really talking about, you know, of, yeah, loving awareness and living in your spiritual heart and, you know, essentially being in the moment, but also, you know, being in love in the moment. I mean, that is what has really influenced my life and changed it. So, but so it's almost like discovering him twice. Totally. His message, even the title Be Here Now, his message was so counter to the American dream narrative that I grew up with about going to be somebody and all that stuff. And just like you said, like, mm-hmm. you know, he was a Harvard professor. Like that's the American dream. You're, you, you're going to be tenured and you're going to write these like papers and books and you'll be, be fancy. fancy. Yeah. You, and then he just throws it all away, you know, cause he does this psychedelic mystical journey. The one part I remember in the book that struck me too, that kind of stayed with me is, so he had done all this LSD, you know, with Timothy Leary, you know, the Merry Pranks, or that whole like '60s, you know, summer of love stuff. Copious so, amounts of LSD. Yeah, copious amounts. So he goes to India. He meets his guru, the Maharaj, and he slips him all this acid. Like he's going to try to like see what you know this wise, enlightened being is going to be like. You know, just bond out of his mind on LSD. So he slips it to him. And it doesn't change him one bit. He's like, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. And he's like, he's acting, it doesn't impact him at all. And his takeaway was like, he's already living in that elevated mystical state. It did nothing for him. And I remember going, holy cow, like that's really what meditation does done over years and years and years is it elevates you up into the higher vibrations or higher dimensions or however you want to describe it. Um, but it also, I think that book really set me on a path of like, don't disregard the Eastern traditions. Don't disregard things like meditation because they can have a vast impact if you use those tools over a lifetime. And so that, that was one of the takeaways that I had from it as well is just like it pointed me in a direction and not necessarily doing lots of psychedelics, but that there was another path that he was pointing to when he gave his teacher all that LSD and it didn't do anything to him, which was shocking. Right. Well, you know, almost because he was already there. I mean, one of the things that Ram Dass would talk about later in his life, because of course everyone wanted to talk to him about, you know, LSD and, you know, Mm -hmm. Timothy Leary and all that, but was the, the, the problem that he had with, with psychedelics was he would, he would get there, but there was always the coming down from it, you know, and, uh, and wanting to be in that permanent sort of that state of, of um, connection and love. And I think, you know, one of the, I, I, one of the things I think about certain psychedelics is they they show you what is out there and possible in your mind. I don't think you necessarily need them, mm-hmm. uh, especially always, but you you almost get like a very fast tour through what is, you know, the infinite universe that's inside your own mind and heart. So, uh, you know, when he gave that, when he did that with the Maharaji, you know, at first he thought he was tricking him or he, whatever, yeah. but it was really that he was just living, living in that state. If you're in warm water and someone pours warm water on you, you don't really feel the water. Yeah. All right. So shifting gears, it's funny. It's like I was writing this, the intro to this episode, and I was saying that we were going to talk about, you know, two initiations, psychedelics and and fatherhood. And I said, you know, psychedelics being the edgier of the two initiations. But as I, as I think about it, it's, it's not necessarily so because fatherhood is just as challenging. And, and I wanted to ask you, you know, most 
new fathers or, or, or expectant fathers, I don't know if they realize how terrifying of an initiation it is. I, I don't think that's often talked about, you know, because they'll ask expectant fathers, you know, how you feeling? You, you good? Yeah, yeah, I know. We're getting ready. We're getting the crib ready. We got the, you know, the nursery or whatever. But there's, I don't know if there's often, I, I feel like as men, it's our duty to pull a, pull aside the expectant fathers and say, it is ter- it's normal to feel terrified because everything's about to change. You're, you're, you're joining a club uh, and it is, it, it, the first part is absolutely going to scare the shit out of you because you just don't know what to expect. You, you, you intuit that everything's about to change and it is your center of the universe is about to change. And it is. Um, and I guess I just wanted to ask you, like, what would you tell new dads and how, and how is, how has fatherhood changed you over? You got two sons, teenage sons. And, uh, right. how, how has it changed you? How has it been an initiation for you? And what might you tell an expectant father or a father is somebody that's got a little guy and, and wants to, you know, wants to get some wisdom from you about like what, what's been your approach or what have you learned? Well, so that's, you know, you mentioned, you know, which is the more edgy of the initiations the thing about psychedelics is they end, you know, mm-hmm. at some point, but the, but the fatherhood is, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a trip that goes on and on and on. And so it's, in that sense, it's definitely scarier. Uh, uh, and I remember that, I mean, it was, you know, quite a while ago for me, but I, I do remember, I didn't even know what I was panicking about, you know, having strange dreams and all these kinds of things that come. And I, you know, I mean, it's initiation into fatherhood is really an initiation into, you know, a changed relationship with your spouse, with your time. Um, and, you know, for me, and I, you know, I wouldn't consider myself selfish, but in many ways I was sort of benign solipsist, you know, and I would just figure anything that I did was, I would only do it with the context of don't hurt anybody else. And, you yeah. know, if it hurts you, you'll be fine. Whether you, you know, get injured or you fail economically or something, that's just on you. But you know, becoming a father sort of made me reluctantly pull back from that. And it's kind of like climbing up a ladder and you get to the final rung where you get to get over the fence and you, you see it and you're like, holy cow, there's nobody over there. And there's right. nothing over there. And it's all, nobody's coming. You know, you're, you're now responsible with your yeah. spouse, you know, I mean, it, not yeah. just by yourself necessarily, but so for me that, how did it change me? Was it one, it pulled me back a little bit from that idea of, you know, the only rule is don't hurt other people you know, physically right. or economically, but also, um, you know, I guess even now I would say to a young parent or young father that the, it's so cliche, but it's so true is that your time and your presence is the priceless gift. And, you know, my own father has passed away and I still draw joy from all of the time and all, you know, an intention that he spent with me, both as a boy and as a man. So yeah, that's the obvious thing, but I, it's really the only thing. Nobody's going to remember what you thought of or yeah, did. And yeah, so, yeah. but you, when you're a father, especially a young father, you start thinking, I need to provide resources and I need to, which you do, but you also, you know, the biggest resource is time. And then, you know, I think you and I both know that. Totally. One thing I would tell uh, a, a young father too, is, you know, you don't need to know how to do everything that men know how to do. You don't necessarily have to be good at sports. You don't necessarily have to be good at fixing things or fixing the car engine, or you don't necessarily have to be good with money. Um, that I think one of the great things is finding ways that you can share the gifts that you have because there's every man has things that he's good at that he can share with his son. And your, your son just wants to spend time with you up to a certain age. Right. And then, but it's like, it can be anything that you enjoy doing. 
um, or what that he enjoys doing. A lot of times I've done stuff that I've never done before because my son really wants to do it. You know, I didn't ride a scooter until he got one. I'm like, let me see if I can do it. Um, but I, and I think that like, you know, this whole thing of like, I've got to be this strong man that knows how to do everything that men are supposed to do. So I can teach my son how to be, it's, it's a faulty way of seeing it. I think, I think it takes a village. Um, I don't like fishing at all. And so, um, but my son was recently was like, I, I want to learn how to fish. I'm like, well, let's find you somebody that knows how to do that. Well, cause it's not going to be me. I don't, I have no interest. I'm not going to go out and buy the gear. I don't like fishing, but, um, his friend Kyle's like, Lucas, I got an extra pole. Let's, uh, let's go. I'll show you how to do it. So there it is. I'm like, I don't, I didn't feel diminished that I didn't know how to do that. Um, but he wants to know how to do it. And I think it, I think it's true for a lot of things. I think that as our boys, you know, start to figure out how to navigate a career or money or relationships, I think there's certain things that us as fathers, we can teach them or give them our perspective. Sometimes it's teaching them what not to do. Like, okay, don't do that. I did that. And that was a disaster. I don't know if I'd go that way again. Um, but it's to not be afraid to ask uncles, friends, best friends to help in areas maybe that you're not the expert in. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think I'd like to see more of that, you know, fathers, you know, helping boys by committee a little bit more instead of the, you know, being islands where we always have to teach them everything ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. It's not the decathlon, you know, yeah, yeah. every event. I, uh, I, you, know, I you mentioned what sports money and uh, fixing things. I mean, you just pick the three things that I definitely can't do. So, <laughs> uh, you know, but I was, I mean, I had that experience with my own kids, you know, we, we joke in my family that being able to fix things is every generation. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. So thank God for YouTube. I actually know how to do some stuff now, but it's all That's because true. I watch a YouTube video. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny, you, you know, you and I were talking about how much, uh, you know, I have a teenager, you have a teenager. Um, how much we really want to impart our hard-won wisdom. This is common. Like if, if they could just listen to us, they would navigate and not make the same mistakes, but it's not really true. They don't really want to hear what we have to say about stuff. That's the, that's the irony. It's like we're, you, yes. and I are, you and I are men of a certain age. We're full of wisdom. We've made a ton of mistakes. We're authentic. But my son's like, I don't want to hear your take on what's going on in X, Y, or Z. Um, how do you manage that? How do you how do you manage that? You know, your your teenagers are like, nah, I don't I don't really want to listen to what you have to say. I mean, do, how do you how do you do that? How do you navigate that? <laughs> well, I I would say you know it's it's funny because you know we're sitting here as you know we share your DNA and we that literally you know we might probably share your name and we're probably the best resource of you know a potential future of you you know <laughs> not that you necessarily yeah. fall that you know maybe you are going to fall far from the tree and yet you're, that's literally the last place people want to look for their answer you know yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm 50 years old I still don't want unsolicited advice from my mother you know nope. I mean you know so I can understand how that is and I think for me you know the way I've managed it in this way is uh unless it's you know physical or legal danger I uh pretty much you, you can only really dole that wisdom out through example or yeah you know answering a question I mean it's frustrating but um it's kind of amusing because I mean I think we're all you know I remember being that way and totally. I mean, to some degree still have it I think you know being around for you know sometimes the answer isn't they're just not ready for the the answer because they don't have the question. And so uh, having that connection with them, and even if you don't tell them anything, they know that they really can't figure it out. But now that they have YouTube, Tony, they don't need us. So it's all, That's true. It's all solved, you know, with one search. When, and I, you and I, you and I were talking about this. I, I think one of the things that we forget about is they pick up, they pick up how we do stuff. 
right? Like uh, you and I were talking about that. Like if we get in, if I get in a disagreement with my wife, if I get in some sort of conflict, he's noticing how I am in the conflict and how fast I get off of it, how fast I clean it up and apologize. He notices, he notices that stuff out of the corner of his eye. So whether or not he's, he's saying, I'm learning this from you. He's scoping me out as a man, as you know, he knows he's going to be a man someday. And he's like, well, this is, this is the close proximity that I can see. I don't want him thinking I'm watching him, but he, I know he picks up on all kinds of stuff, how I take care of myself. Do I sleep enough? Do I, do I eat good food or not? Do I, you know, he notices all the stuff. Um, And so it's literally like what you said, it's like, they're picking up on it, but they don't want you to know that they're picking up on it. You know, they don't want to, they don't want to credit you for anything. Cause it's like, no, I don't want you getting a big head or thinking that you're telling me what to do. And like you said, I don't want unsolicited advice from anybody, really. really, really anybody. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, when it, they're kind of like, um, they're kind of like inmates, you know, doing like a life <laughs> they're watching everything and, you know, they, they know, they know it all. And they, and they may not even know that they're watching. Right. But I mean, it's, you know, how, how you treat strangers, how you do it. And that's, I mean, I think that's a good thing in the sense that it makes it easier. You can go, okay, well, if I just live my, you know, honest, authentic self life, then that is in itself, not through osmosis, but just through frankly being observed yeah. and teaching, right. You're teaching just through doing and, uh, you're right. Like, how do you, you know, how do you resolve an argument? Do you, how do you, you know, how do you treat a person who cut you off in traffic? I mean, anything, right. All of that uh, is being watched and not necessarily mimicked, but you're, it's, you're being, you know, considered as it's being considered as future behavior. So yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, obviously we're not always our perfect selves or especially around our families, but. Well, I think, I think also sometimes men uh, I, I'm, I know some men like this that are like, they try to project this kind of always you know, I, I, I guess strength is one way of saying it. Like I'm, you know, always winning all, you know, I'm do the right things. I, I, you know, I, I go, you know, I'm doing, I'm killing it at work or whatever. I, and I, and I feel like sometimes they don't, they're not comfortable talking about the things they don't do well. They, they lack authenticity. And I think it can create something with your sons where they're not going to talk. If they start getting in trouble with, you know, smoking pot or drinking or, you know, whatever is the trouble, with that situation, I don't think they would come to that man because they're like, dad's only interested in the gold. He doesn't want to know when things aren't going well. If I'm struggling, he doesn't want to know. And I think there's a balance that men have to have with like telling, sharing your own struggles where you've struggled is important, I think, for young sons because I think they can, they can, it makes you more relatable. And I think as they stumble across some of their own things, maybe later, maybe in their twenties or thirties, they'll be more comfortable going, Hey dad, I know, I remember you uh, talking about this and here I am in the same situation where if all you project is success and gold, you know, I don't know if they'll ever really feel comfortable sharing that, dude, I, I'm depressed. You know, it's like, right. I've got, I've got some weird funk. I just don't feel good all the time. And it's like, Hey, I had depression when I was younger, you know, this is what I did or it's in my book. If you want to read it, you know, it's like, so, um, I think that, that, you know, that idea of being, you know, being honest about your struggles or at least your past struggles with your, with your children is it also on top of making them want to talk to you. It, it's an example that you can overcome it, you know, and yeah. you know, whether it be heartbreak as a teenager or as a person, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, I think it's, it actually is giving, you're giving someone a seed of like, oh, you know, it's not because, you know, nobody, it's it's a lie if anyone's never had a problem, right? If all they are is winning, then I mean, that's just like, that's not helpful information because it's not true. And then if that's really how you go out into the world thinking, as long as you always win, you'll be fine. And then what happens when you don't, you know, you don't really have a plan B for that. So I think, I think it's important. And it does connect you. I mean, I think there's a, 
you know, the balance with, with, you know, people that you're in charge of or taking care of, or mm-hmm. is you don't want to scare them with things they can't control. You know, the struggles, your struggles that are, they can't control, you don't want them to become their struggles. But I think especially struggles that you have a handle on or that you've handled uh, are, um, it's actually, I'm proud of them, you know, to be honest. <laughs> I feel like, hey, look what I did. I lifted this weight off the ground and I did it. And, you know, totally. so, you know, so I, I'm not afraid of that personally. I think that, you know, and I think honestly, like you were saying earlier, you're, you're, they're watching you. They know you're not, they know you're not tough if you aren't tough. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're yeah. just hiding yeah. it. They're going to, they're going to see right through you and know that's not authentic. Totally, totally. You know, it, it's such a, it's such a balance uh, in fatherhood, balancing authority, although you and I are talking about, you know, do we really have that much authority and authenticity? You and I both have a friend and I, I did an episode back in the first season, episode seven, uh, how to raise a boy with Dr. Michael Reichert. And I, and I talked about our, fr- our mutual friend who had a teenage son and he's a real live and let live guy. And he, his son was starting to um, dabble in marijuana and he was young. He was, you know, I think he was in his early teens and they, him and his wife started to give him urine tests. And I remember thinking, Whoa, I mean it, and he had great success at it. The, 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 the kid started to, um, you know, he stayed clean. He really wanted to drive a car and have a car. So they used that as a motivating factor. And I remember going, God, I, it seemed too harsh. It seemed too um, intrusive to me. Locked up or something. Yeah, yeah. I just felt like, wow, that's, that's like something that maybe my far right military dads might say, you know, drug test. For sure. Yeah. And then, and then when I shared it with Dr. Michael Reichert, he said, well, then what was the outcome? What happened? And I said, no, he got, he, he stopped doing it. He, he stayed clean. He got his grades came up because he really wanted to drive the car. And Dr. Michael Reichert was like, well, that just goes to show you that the parents really understood the boy. It might not have worked for a different kind of boy, but it worked for them because they have been tracking him and they know what was important was the car. And so they use it. He goes, I think I completely approve. I give them a standing ovation and they got the results, which is the ultimate you know, proof that it worked. Which yeah, we both know is tough for them to even implement. You know, they had to do it. You know, with yeah, the yeah. mirror of, uh, of uh, you know, they didn't really want to do it. They right. were happy that they didn't have to keep doing it after a while. So, right, right. And, and I mean, could, was there was there? Did your friends sign it? Was there pushback from it? Did he like go? Hell no! I mean, I could imagine my son. You know, he's fourteen now, so we're coming up on that kind of age. I mean, was there like, I ain't doing this or was he like, I don't think, I think it was almost, you know, one of the, the relationship between them was, it was, uh, it was absolute compliance, you know? Um, and which was made it a lot quicker for everybody, you know, because right, right. what he said was, well, if you fail, then we're going to knock your, you're not going to get your learner's permit for another six months. So that, yeah. you know, nobody wants that. I mean, you, you know, we all remember wanting to be. Oh yeah. Hours last that's yeah. to me, that's the first part of being a freedom of an adult, at least in this country. So, absolutely. Um, so I don't, there wasn't really pushback. And I think, you know, it also was one of the things where he, um, he, it was early, you know, he wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a lifestyle of smoking pot or doing that. It was really frankly being stupid and getting caught. Right, right, right. So I think that, you know, was also helped with it working versus someone who's, you know, 17 and going, well, you're not going to tell me what to do now. You know, I'm right. gonna do this is me. So, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's tough too, because I mean, even I don't, you know, I didn't have kids so that I could be a boss. 
They don't want to be a monster. Right, right. Yeah, I don't want to be a monster. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I could see how that approach may have worked in my case as a young person, but it, 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 nobody was doing stuff like that back then. You know, it was just like, you know, we were running rampant. We were just, you know, it was just kind of the boys are doing what the boys do. And there was, there wasn't a lot of like necessarily getting into our personal space that way. It was, I think they were just, Oh yeah. I mean, my parents have, I, you know, I didn't have a phone. I mean, knew where we were. I mean, we, you know, yeah. as long as you're not getting, you know, arrested home by the police, you're pretty yeah. much, you know, you're free to go. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. You and you and I, you and I are both. We share uh, an affinity for people. We're both natural optimists. I think. Um, what What is it that you're upbeat about right now? Like, what has you feeling optimistic about what's coming? It could be anything that's happening in the world, happening within yourself or your your family. What What has you feeling upbeat right now? You know, I I would. I mean, right now we're what about sixteen months or so since you know people started staying home and yeah. you know everything was shutting down. And you know, I I think as the world, at least the United States, is returning more normalcy. I see, you know, what I see in my own friendships and, and people I know, even not, you know, closely, is that people are being more uh, vulnerable with each other. You know, they're, yeah. you know, not everyone's, you know, turned into like a poet or, um, yeah. you know, something like that, but people are less afraid to decide what's important to them regarding their time and their relationships. And right now, as, you know, up here in the Northwest where things, are starting to return to normal, I see people getting very rejoiceful, even about like the smallest examples of things yeah. that are returning to normalcy, um, things that were there before and they're only missed when they were gone. Cause we took them for granted. And like, you know, like an unplanned visit with a friend or frankly talking to a stranger yeah. on the street without feeling nervous about whether you're um, going to make them nervous or whatever. And, you know, I think those little moments are like, they're like little shoots that are like popping up in the soil after a forest fire and yeah. we're recognizing them and people right now, at least they have, they're, they're attentive and they're, they're saying, Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. And, you know, to me, it's sort of a communal or societal example of for now people appreciating and, you know, being more aware of the present moment. And, you know, that's getting back to even what we talk about with Ron Doss. I mean, that's all there is at the moment. And I, even people who would never consider themselves a meditator or a hippie or anything else are doing it. And they are saying, oh, look, that is, you know, I walked down the street and that was, and that's, that is a meditation. That is a moment. Absolutely. That's beautiful. I mean, I, I'm hearing friends, you know, all over the place in all parts of the, of the world really, but in this country, especially just saying that the, you know, they're just noticing the conversations, um, to echo what you were saying, they're saying you know, like there's just the, the topics are more soulful. People are sharing on a deeper level. Something's going on. I mean, there's, you know, I've talked about it a lot on the show about the great awakening. And what I meant by that really ultimately was an evolution in consciousness that it's almost like what you and I have been talking about this whole time around uh, the mystical vision, Ram Dass, um, the interconnectedness. Um, it seems to be flowering in the human species right now. It's accelerated. And so that has me really excited and just my own understanding um, and being a part of it, feel I feel like I'm a part of some grand conversation that's that's assisting our forward movement. So I'm super excited. Um, Joe, thanks so much for coming on Base Camp for a minute. I've been wanting oh, to get you on. Yeah, I've been wanting to have you on for like a year. Um, and thanks for coming on, sharing your insight and your wisdom. Come back anytime. Maybe we should try to brainstorm another episode. I'll let you, I'll let you pen the next episode. How's that? <laughs> oh, sure. I'm sure I have lots of wisdom. I'll go find <laughs> it. So I'll bring it to you. Okay. Thanks again, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Tony. 
I hope you enjoyed my interview with Joe Groob. Joe and I both recommend Ram Dass's Be Here Now, which is considered a classic in psychedelic and mystical literature. Whether or not you ever explore the psychedelic path, Be Here Now carries incredible wisdom and light. It has the distinction of being one of the first books that brought the teachings and wisdom of the East to the minds of us Westerners. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors, and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac, and you're listening to Basecamp for Men. Basecamp for Men.